at this point, I will uh, introduce us once again to my co-pastor, Kyle Hanawalt, as we turn toward today's discussion. Hi, Kyle. Hello. And I, I will say, I recently realized, living with Central Air now, I didn't as a child, I realized how much time I spent growing up trying to stay cool, just navigating how hot I get. And it's like this whole like a part of my life is opened up now that I don't live in a house that I'm constantly trying to navigate that. But it's, it's a real thing. I'd say cold showers was my, my go-to all through childhood. The, the cold shower right before bed was a, a way to go. And then the fan. Okay, there we go. Abby's taking notes for her life so she can survive. Thanks. That's good. Well, we're, we're in the middle of a series of discussions uh, that we've called God of the Oppressed, this phrase that uh, we've mentioned we borrowed from uh, James Cone, who is a writer on Black liberation theology. And what we're doing, if you're just jumping in or if you need a reminder, we're immersing ourselves in various different oppressed people groups perspectives on Jesus and on faith and on the Bible. And we're trying to do that one at a time. Uh, and the reason is because in America, what colors most of our understandings of Jesus and of God is a powerful perspective. The, the people who have written all of the books that have been published and then passed around to seminaries and then seminaries pass them on the pastors and then pastors teach them in churches are all almost exclusively uh, come from European, American, straight, white, male, dominant culture perspectives. And they've taught us a ton of things but they are just a disproportionate amount of, uh, of, of, of weight at the, at the center. And so what we are trying to do is say that that has serious limitations when that's the case. For one thing, we are not really talking about Jesus if we're talking about power, because Jesus was an oppressed person. He was a minority within an empire. And then also because when any of us are facing the hardest things of life, when we're facing suffering or loss or challenge, we don't turn to the most powerful or high status people to teach us how to get through it, right? We, when, when you struggle with heat, you don't turn to somebody who has central air to teach you, right? So we, no, we turn to someone who is acquainted with the hardship that we're facing. It is suffering and loss and challenge that binds us all together and we need a God who sees that. I mean, right now in our community, just, I, I took a survey of just uh, people that we've interacted with in the church just to know like what's going on in people's lives. We have people whose loved ones are dying. We have people who are experiencing broken relationships and betrayal. We have people who are experiencing loneliness, health concerns, discrimination and prejudice in their workplaces, stress and anxiety, loss of work and unemployment. We need a God who knows what it's like to endure these sorts of things and overcome these sorts of things who have learned what it is to fight injustice and then find hope and resilience in spite of it. And it is oppressed people groups, much more than people of power who can teach us about that God. So that's why we're doing this. Today's discussion, so far we've been hearing from uh, perspectives that are not usually centralized. So if you've been following along, we heard from an LGBTQ voice, we heard from a Latin American voice, we heard from a second generation Korean immigrant voice. If you've missed any of these, uh, you can do yourself a favor and go back and check them. Guys, this is some of the best stuff that our church has ever done. They are really fantastic. Uh, you can find them all. All of the discussions are in the Brownline Church podcast, uh, which you can uh, do through podcasting, whatever app you like. Uh, or starting this week, actually, thanks to the amazing Mike Frazier. If anybody knows Mike Frazier, give Mike some... some I don't know what I'm giving. Am I giving him raising the roof right now? I'm a little bit embarrassed. Let's stop that. We're going to give Mike props or applause, right? Mike Frazier 
is going to be curating our new YouTube channel, which is a way for somebody to uh, to find all of our past services. We, you know, all of our services are now recorded since we've been online. And so what you can do is this is a one, one place where you can go and they'll just all be there. So uh, starting this week, we're going to have that available. Um, we'll uh, drop uh, a little bit later in the service um, a, uh, a info on the, um, on the YouTube um, link. Okay, so anyway, all I'm doing is just telling you what we've been doing. We've been centralizing not usually centralized voices. But in order to do that, the other side of that is that we have to make space for those who are not usually, we have to make space for those who are not usually centralized by decentralizing what, decentralizing what has taken up too much space. And that is what today is about. Decentralizing the God of power and that perspective. Today's gonna be part one and I'm gonna interview Kyle, our wonderful co-pastor about pivotal shifts in his personal story as a straight white middle-class guy following Jesus that has shifted him away from the God of the powerful and toward a God of the oppressed view. So we're gonna learn what were those shifts. We're gonna learn what marginalized perspectives taught him those shifts. We're gonna learn when and how did they happen and how did they transform him and how did they make his faith more like something that serves him? Uh, what, what did he have to sacrifice as a person of privilege to follow? We're gonna learn all those things. So uh, as a reminder, please uh, chime into the chat. Abby is moderating that. We'll rope her in eventually to kind of uh, steer our discussion as we go along. But uh, let's get going with what Kyle has prepared for us today. Uh, Kyle, I'm going to share uh, our, um, our points mm -hmm. uh, that we'll look at here. And then I want you to just kind of walk us through them. And before I jump in, I think the, the reason why I think this conversation is so important is because myself as a, as a white man living in America who grew up highly involved in church, all of the frameworks of faith, of faith that I gave authority to, the, the voices that helped shape the way that I read the Bible and helped shape the way that I engaged with the world around me, um, with one exception, were white men. So whether we're talking about like Martin Luther and John Calvin or Billy Graham or John Wimber or the pastors of my own church and my father um, and another white man, I think the one exception in this was just my mother being the one non-white male voice that really helped shape the way that I saw the world. And still to this day, uh, I think there's so many things from that that I think highlight a, a healthy version of faith. And so for me, there was a process of having to listen to and learn from perspectives that were not echoed in kind of my, my primary experience of faith and the ways that that helped decentralize powerful white men voices and listen to the voices of other people, listen to people that were not coming from European American white male perspective how much that really did enhance and grow and give me a greater sense of freedom and how I saw and believed God because he became so much bigger and richer. Very cool, very cool. Well, we're excited to learn some more. So let's get our first point up and you can tell us about it. Uh, the first point is that power teaches uh, an in versus out faith to uphold the status quo. And what we're shifting toward is powerlessness teaches a journeying faith. So Kyle, when did this happen? How did it happen? Tell us more. Um, so I went to North Park University for my undergrad and I developed a pretty close relationship with a professor there named Dr. Brad Nassif. And his background is in Eastern Orthodox theology. 
And in that experience with him, spent a lot of time studying uh, early patristics known as the Desert Fathers and studying the evolution of how theology was formed in the Eastern world, opposed to how theology was formed in the Western world in Europe and America. And for me, there were certain shifts in the way that things came together that kind of opened my eyes to a experience of faith that actually felt really helpful to me. And so maybe the way that, the way that he used to say this is it's not so much that the Eastern church uh, came up with different answers, it's that they asked different questions. Hmm. And so um, the biggest kind of key point to look at this here is in the Western church and in America and Europe, we have been hyper obsessed with point of salvation. At what point did you enter in to be able to be, you know, in forever? And there's been violence and strife and disagreement. It's a big reason why there are something about 2,000 different denominations in our country. It has to do with the different ways we slice in versus out. It's a very Western way of thinking about things. We want to define it down to the point. Well, in the Eastern Church, the main focus was something called divinization. It's the idea that the focus in life is not pinpointing the point you became in and thus trying to convince the whole world around you to come in. It is that we are all on a journey of divinization. Divinization, in other words, being one with God, being God-like, becoming like the divine. It's a journey that we can never quite achieve, but the process is not achieving God-likeness within ourselves, but rather journeying for it throughout our whole life. And so the question asked is not what point am I in, or is that behavior or that action something that is in versus out? It is about progressing along the journey. There's an image in the Eastern Church that we move from the garden in Genesis to the beautiful city in Revelation. We are moving forward in progression. And to me, this was greatly freeing, recognizing that a lot of the ways that my in versus out perspectives were formed really were about maintaining a status quo. We're really about once I'm in, I'm in, and I'm maintaining that. And then I'm hyper-focused on defining where other people are. Because once I'm in, that's the, the attention is where is that behavior in or out? Is that person in or out? And then, you know, maybe I'm even feeling pressure to convince people to jump into the in with me. Um, because a big part of my own staying in is that I'm convincing other people to be in with me. Opposed to a faith of journey, which is asking a different question. You know, we've talked a lot about in our church this idea of a bounded set, a circle, you're either in or out. Uh, opposed to centered set, where there's a dot, which would be Jesus in our case, or in the Eastern Orthodox uh, position, it would be divinization, one with God. And the question for us is not, are we in or out, but are we journeying towards that? And that to me was kind of, I was introduced that way before I was introduced to bounded set and centered set. And it radically changed the questions I asked about faith, and it radically shifted where my attention went to in faith. So this sounds like very much a, a sort of early on shift that later on, I think like you, you like water this plant and you see what it flowers into is that in the journeying faith, there's no need to exert your power. There's no need to uh, manage all of these other people. There, and so therefore it is a less violent, it is a more equitable, more just approach to faith and because, because you're, you're so much le less like uh, distracted 
by qualifying or judging or categorizing other human beings. Yeah, you know, I think uh, a good way to think about this is, you know, you think about a lot of the uh, theology we get out of the West, and it is very much defined on let's define what's in versus out. And it's these it's a lot of white men, and it, it feels to me, somebody that grew up with a worldview that, that I kind of, how I interpreted the world, which was constantly dividing. Is that person in? Is that person out? Is that person a Christian? Is that a non-Christian? Is that person healthy or not healthy? I kind of went through the world just living in this kind of binary space. And as a privileged person, for me, in a lot of ways, it maintained a status quo of I am always going to be the one that is in, like, and I'm understanding the world through that lens. Opposed to, for me, the the way that you think about, like, there's a, the, a book that I read, um, uh, one of these early patristics, uh, The Ladder of Divine Ascent. It's all about what's the next step I'm taking. And then my, my attention around me is not so much constantly trying to figure out where I land, and it's no longer holding me up as a status quo, as a powerful person, I cannot ever be satisfied. I am always trying to tackle something within myself and I am journeying forward, which calls to account, I think the powerful in a way that a lot of uh, kind of Western theology that's based at it in a very kind of binary understandings of things often lives. And the truth is a lot of these theologies were born out of places of power. Like John Calvin's Geneva, they became the powerful people there that were literally uh, like persecuting other people around them for mm. disagreeing with them. And the way that Western theology and politics have so always brought together, we just as humans are not clever enough when we bring in versus out, it's just power always finds its way in, opposed to a journeying faith, which is just asking different questions. Very good, very good. I'm, I am thinking back to something that you shared years ago in a talk uh, where we were, we were talking about uh, some manner of in versus out. And I remember you said something that really was provocative. It, it was like, the, what we should take notice of is that in America, if you think mm -hmm. about like, what does it look like? What's the picture of a godly person? Uh, there's a real problem with that. If what that most like most maps on top of like with overlap is being a middle-class white married straight uh, guy. And it's like when, when, when there's too much overlap with those, there's, I think we might be talking about something we don't think we're talking about. <laughs> Well, if you think about what traditional evangelicalism asks of us, the challenges it presents to us, particularly if you think even just a half generation ago where it was not, it was widely accepted that women need to take a subordinate position, but, but even today where there's still uh, other questions in there, um, the person that is the least challenged by American evangelicalism is a cisgender, straight, married white man. He just gets, to, as long as he's staying, as long as he's staying faithful, staying res somewhat responsible with his money, um, the, the challenge asked of him is, is you can live your life, you can do whatever you want, you can exist in any way you want to in the society. And that, to me, is a red flag. When we have 
taken the most powerful subset of a human and said, hey, guess this most powerful subset is going to require the least amount of challenge. It makes me wonder if we've conflated a picture of Jesus with a picture of the status quo. Um, and so to me, I think that's a, an important question for us to, to wrestle with. When, when, we are not, when we are challenging people who experience marginalization in the rest of their life, and they're the ones that are facing the greatest th challenge in our theology, you know, women, um, non-cisgender, uh, LGBTQ, um, people who are single, if we're asking the greatest burden on them, I think maybe we are not fully aware and in touch with the way that our culture is influencing us. Boy, how, how can we not think of uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez's words this last week after hearing you say that? I mean, that is, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. All right, let's move on to our next point that you have for us here, Kyle. Mm -hmm. It is that power teaches individualistic sin to avoid structural sin. But what we're shifting toward is powerlessness teaches liberation from sinful structures. All right, tell us more. You know, we touched on this a little bit last week with Linda, but um, I had the privilege of um, part listening to a few lectures in person from Gustavo Gutierrez, uh, kind of the father of Latin American liberation theology. And to me, it really did shift a lot of the ways that I thought about things. And um, kind of in, in this picture of liberation theology, holding up kind of the, the Exodus story a lot at the heart. And, and the way that I think is most helpful to me is it changed the way that I interpreted and understood the Ten Commandments. So individualist sin is it's entirely focused on my moral purity. I am making choices about maintaining a sense of internal, individualistic, personalized, personal covenant between me and God. Have I, you and I are agreeing to something and sin is the ways that I am breaking that agreement with you. And then that is, that's the way that that's experienced. And so 10 commandments can be seen as this is my agreement and covenant with you, God. I won't lie. I won't commit adultery. I won't hold other gods before you. And when I do those, the violation I experience is between me and you. The truth, but to me, after listening to Gustavo Gutierrez, who, if you want to think back to our conversation with Barbie, of mm -hmm. a lot of our Latin American world being marked by dictatorship, being marked uh, by just an incredibly oppressive government, government experience. For them, the conversation of liberation is actually the, the sin, the brokenness of it all is not just an individualized personal morality, it is the brokenness of the world around us. And actually right. what God is bringing liberation from is not just my own sense of like, I've been a bad person, but a sense of I participate in evil structures and he's constantly fighting against them. And so in the Exodus narrative, of course, you see the Israelites, God liberating them from uh, Egypt, you know, this people that they had actually brought prosperity to under Joseph and protection to under Joseph. But the uh, kind of tribalism within Egypt led to them turning on them because the Pharaoh realized, hey, actually, there's a lot of Jews here. The Hebrews are people. I'm actually afraid of losing my power. So he enslaves them and God comes in and, and brings liberation. Uh, it's, it's actually in pretty like intense 
fierce ways uh, through the, the different plagues that he brings. And then after they're freed, he brings the Ten Commandments. Now, so for me, when I'm shifting my brain away from individualism and I'm, I'm shifting it towards a picture of understanding that sin exists in our world, our society, our structure, and not just within me, then I see the Ten Commandments uh, is not just about you maintaining a personal covenant with you and God, but it's about a people maintaining a covenant to protect the justice of that society. This is a new nomadic group that's traveling around. And if you read through those Ten Commandments, I cannot think of ten better better things I would put in place for those new Hebrews to maintain a safety within that society. Like, I think it's, you know, one of those things is I always like one of the Ten Commandments is thou shall not lie. No, it's not that. It's thou shall not bear false witness against their neighbor, which to me is just an interesting hmm. shift of saying like, we need to live in a society where we are not calling each other out. Uh, fidelity changes that. It's not just that I was like morally, um, sexually immoral. It's that what uh, infidelity leads to in even today, profoundly in ancient history, but even today is usually women and children being left in poverty. And so like you think about the structural implications of sin, it just frames it away for me. And the reason why that's important is because if sin is purely about my individual purity, then I do not have to confront the brokenness of a society around me that is holding me up by the status quo. I can be totally personally moral and not challenge the structural racism in our schools. As long as I'm not being racist, and that's what we see a lot. I'm not racist, but we participate in a racist system. I'm not racist is I'm defending myself from the individual sin. I'm participate in a racist system is we need liberation from sinful structures. And it's just, it's important for people of power to make sure that we're not so focused on individualism that we miss the way that Jesus lives in our structures and society. And to me, that like blew my mind. It opened up my, my world listening to Gustavo talk and talk about a, a experience of reality that I have a different responsibility towards. That is really something. And I guess I want to ask a little bit more about how, like kind of tease out all the different ways this is, that this affected you. I mean, certainly it would make you somebody who, uh, once again, like these are early seeds and like what has flowered and uh, to become somebody who, um, whose heart is moved by injustice and wants to be a part mm -hmm. of that. And so, I mean, that's a, that's a lot of the, uh, I think the, the fruition of, of what we're seeing in you. But also, I feel like this says a lot to, I mean, the, the shift away from sin is all individualistic to understanding sin is more structural also sounds like for, for you as an individual, that actually is much more freeing and mm -hmm. like you like that a lot more and you actually therefore have more energy and passion and, and less fear about going and doing, being a part of tearing down structural shin. I mean, can you talk about like, how do you, how do you live that out? It, and, and it sounds like it'd be so much better that this shift. Well, you know, I experience my current faith as more life-giving and freeing in two different ways. One of them is I just, I have a lot less anxiety than I used to about my faith. You know, both this idea of this hyper-focused on individual transgression and this hyper-focus on in versus out, it's an anxious system. Am I, where am I in the game? How am I doing? And the individualism sin was very much like, what's the checklist? Like if I think of the Ten Commandments as a checklist, oh, did I bear false witness this last week? It's a very anxiety-filled system. 
But when I've shifted into a different, uh, into what I currently experience right now, it's much more about asking God each day what he has for me and inviting him into that experience with me. And so then to me, what I do with my full-time job is trying to address uh, structural racism and resource gaps around income within the public school system. That's like what I do. And to me, this idea of seeing the structure of our school system in America as the sin that Jesus is dying on the cross for, and not just, uh, you know, maybe if I said something racist, he died for that. Like that, that to me, that shift right there, it, do, it not only feels a sense of God pulling me into something more, but it also puts me in a different perspective. When I feel like I'm actually like, you know, as long as I'm not being racist, I'm good. And then God's calling me to like fight against racism. I, I'm the hero of that story. However, in this liberation perspective, I am not the hero in the story. I am party to the status quo that for generations has systemically and strategically created inequitable outcomes. And I get called into a richer version of the world. I get to have a better version of my life fighting for a more just world. Not because I'm a hero, because I'm not. It's because every action I get, every action I take towards making the kingdom of heaven here on earth Every action I see bringing Jesus's grace and forgiveness and freedom into this world, to me, I see it not just because I lied last week and Jesus forgives me from that, but because Jesus is actively fighting back against the narratives of black and brown children that tell them that they are troublemakers and that they are uh, less important and that the, the way that schools are set up to kind of sort and track kids, that that is something that God is fighting against. That to me, it's a much richer and freer experience of life. Well, that's good. And, and just to bring in a perspective that our, our church really feels passionate about um, also centralizing is uh, the voice of people who are spiritually inclined, but outsiders in church. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I, 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 I'm sort of, uh, as, I, as I grow up, I, uh, I'm more of a, a secular kid, a, a progressive kid who finds myself ending up like being passionate about going to church and uh, being a praying person. And, and, uh, and one thing that has always puzzled me uh, from that perspective is how, how much uh, the, the, the language from a more individualistic sin uh, uh, church world could claim that somebody like me didn't care about morality, like didn't care mm-hmm. about human beings. And, and it, it just always felt like, what? Like, I don't care about morality. Like I, I, I'm, I, I care deeply about what happens to other human beings. I think it was what, what was different. Is it, is it individualistic or is it structural? And, uh, and, and I, I, that's given me eyes to see uh, something that I've always been confused about uh, and, as somebody who's kind of coming from a church outsider perspective, culturally. You know, I have a friend who I grew up going to church with who has since left church and is not interested at this point. And talking to him about it, he was saying it feels really challenging because it feels like uh, church was a place where I got to feel like a good person without actually changing anything about the status quo. Mm. And I think mm. that, that, is, that speaks to what, what's happening in our world right now. It very much is the case of like, we're super, uh, super, super attentive to people's personal, se- like the sexual uh, morality. And 
that all of our attention is there and not to say there aren't high stakes in terms of sexual morality. There are very high stakes. Um, but when we are only thinking about sin and to me, even as I think about sexual morality, I, the way I think about it is a lot different now. It's not so much a, a personal offense to God because, you know, uh, uh, you broke your rules with him. It's living in a society where there's children that were, where the stakes of what happens in terms of sexual connection are just extremely high children, uh, the breaking up of marriages. These are real structural challenges. And that's, I think we need to take it real seriously for sure, including the emotional effect on it. But to me, it is not just because God is angry at me because, uh, you know, that's why I need to be careful with my sexual morality. It's because we live in a world with real impact and stuff, particularly like if I would go back to my 15 year old self who believed that all God asked of me was to maintain, would maintain sexual purity. I would go back to him again and say, hey, dude, you're 15. You shouldn't be doing this. The consequences are bigger than you can do. But it's not because God's super angry with you. It's because mm -hmm. God cares about a just society and cares about your life. And the consequences of this are really huge. It's just a different conversation. Again, as we're talking about the earlier question, it's not so much our answers are different, but certainly our questions are. Oh, wonderful. Great stuff, Kyle. Great stuff. All right. Uh, we have uh, one more point here that we want to get to, and I'm just loving it so much. I'm going too long. So if we go a little long today, that's Vince's fault, not Kyle's fault. Okay. All right. Our final point is uh, power teaches a tribal Jesus uh, to colonize and control. Powerlessness teaches translating Jesus to each context. So Kyle, when did you learn this and how did it affect you? And tell us more. So I spent about a decade working for um, this Presbyterian organization and the person I worked for directly, I was just doing admin stuff, but the thing that he, his focus was, was working with Muslim background followers of Jesus. And he hosted lots of conversations where it was uh, Muslims and Christians coming together and just learning and connecting, um, working with uh, followers of Jesus who still identify culturally as Muslim. Um, and it, it was this really interesting thing that I'm trying to figure out uh, as a child is how on earth could you say you follow Jesus if you don't claim being a Christian? It's just silliness, right? Of course, those are Christians have co-opted it. Um, and so the, in the context of working with this guy and, and my first connection with him is he was actually intersecting with somebody else that I was connected with in, in my own kind of church world named Carl Medeiros. And this started this whole conversation of, of, what does it mean to follow Jesus? And he has this whole image of there's a soccer game, right? And we, there's like, you know, the Muslim side and the Christian side and we're at battle. And then all of a sudden Jesus appears in the middle of the game. And then all of a sudden we're like trying to claim him. The Christians are like, oh, our, you know, our superstar is here. Come on, Jesus, let's go. Let's take on those Muslims. And then he walks to the middle of the field and he's like, I'm not on any team. I just want you to follow me. And it's this idea that, that actually still exists today, which is, uh, what they call the insider movement. It's people who still identify as being Muslim, but they follow Jesus. And it's because what their religion means to them is a cultural thing. It's about how they relate to their family. It's the holidays they celebrate. It's, it's part of who they are culturally. And so uh, there's this idea that, you know, when Carl Medeiros was out talking to um, some Muslims and this guy said, well, I'm a Muslim that follows Jesus. And then uh, Carl, who, who is culturally Christian as an American, said, oh, I guess I'm a Christian who follows Jesus. And the reason this was so helpful for me is it moved uh, pursuit of Jesus away from the cultural frameworks of faith. 
And it helped me for the one of the first times really see how much in America Christianity is a culture. And it has it has given voice to claim Jesus, but Jesus does not exist within American Christianity. Jesus exists within the invitation to all of us. And so what I realized is that the one of the things that happens throughout history is when people are trying to claim Jesus. It, is, it happened most profoundly in, in the way that colonization happened all through our world. It's people saying, you want to follow Jesus? Well, you know what following Jesus looks like? Changing, changing the way you dress, changing the way that you do traditions, changing the way you raise children, changing your culture. And there was a large movement that I was introduced to in my early 20s of starting to realize that what's more important than people understanding the culture around Jesus is people understanding Jesus and then figuring out what does it mean for somebody who grew up culturally Muslim to still own that identity but still follow Jesus. And then likewise for me, what are the parts of my culture as a Christian that I find really oppressive and I'm holding on to them because I somehow believe that Jesus needs me to hold on to them. When the truth is, in my context, God actually wants me to do something far more dynamic. Very good. Very good. Well, um, we're running a little low on time, so I want to invite Abby in if uh, there's anything going on from our chat, uh, comments or questions, uh, a, a space for like a, some final takeaways from Kyle here. Yeah, so Kyle, you mentioned um, that how we can be, you know, so focused on the structure and individual roles that we kind of forget to see where and how Jesus lives in our society. And a lot of people, I think, are really resonating with the idea of this in versus out and getting and finding it helpful to have some uh, some words to describe their experiences. And um, just, you know, reading through what some people are saying in the chat, it seems like there have been a lot of like gotcha moments um, that people have experienced with this type of faith system um, with, you know, so heavy on definition. Um, and then really with this idea of the shift to looking at a bigger structural sin rather than individual defensiveness, um, it's, uh, you know, more aligned to a Western view, I think um, Isaac was saying. And so we're not really looking at the little ways um, that we support these larger systems that mm. marginalize other people. Um, so I think there's just a lot of, there's actually a lot of great discussion in the chat just about how this resonates with people, but then, um, you know, kind of putting that on uh, our larger sort of Western society as well as you were kind of just mentioning as well. And I think this is why it's so important that we are learning from people that are not just coming from our perspective. And so, uh, and it's because we miss the way that we hurt each other. We miss the way that the world is oppressive to each other. And so I think when we, we see these religious environments that are, are very often totally homogenous, and even the ones that are pretty diverse, they're usually like they're diverse, but the thing that holds them together usually is a, a really particular like evangelical theology yes. that is, is yeah, it, it's a it's a it's the Christian culture piece. So like yes, we you may come from a different like ethnic background, but we we share the same kind of Christian culture thing. And that's why I think it's really important that we're interacting with and learning and connecting with people that don't share the same assumptions with us because we will be bonded, particularly for me particularly if you are somebody who benefits from the status quo, because I go back to what uh, Mr. Juilliard said from that talk, the first step to structural change is admitting things are not okay. And if I'm looking through my lens of life, yeah, things are kind of hard, but at the end of the day, like, it's not, like, 
it kind of looks okay, you know what I mean? And so I need to make sure that I'm stepping into the perspectives of Gustav Gutierrez that's living out um, dictatorship in South America. I need to be able to step into the eyes of a Muslim background follower of Jesus who is living in an incredibly different context. And the idea of being forced away from their their cultural expressions of, of being a Muslim is an incredibly hard experience. Or I need to step back and listen to somebody whose entire worldview has not been shaped by intellectual cisgender straight white men who are coming from Europe or America. It's just so important what this series means and it is like extra important for me because without it I'm just going to miss where Jesus is working in the world and then I'm just going to believe it's happening within me. Well, there we go. And that is the optimal word for today's talk is decentralizing. We're taking it out of the center. Uh, so this is great. Kyle, thank you so much for kind of sharing a little bit. Uh, I think we've gotten glimpses of these stories uh, in your like talks over the years, uh, but it's great to kind of have it all in one place and how that connects with what we're doing in this series. And even uh, as we're talking, um, I am feeling like there are uh, a lot of, uh, I'm, I'm just feeling very excited for the rest of our series that is to come. Mm -hmm. So uh, one thing that I thought of just as, as it was brought up here is uh, our, we'll be hearing soon uh, from our friend Maria Santian, who will be talking about uh, being a church outsider. And, uh, and it gets at this thing that you were mentioning there at the end, which is, uh, a key thing about diversity that's not often discussed when it comes to discussions of privilege, and especially when it comes to discussions of privilege in church, is religious privilege. We do not talk about that. We not, do not talk about how you're rewarded if you know the insider lingo, or if you can, even if you can make a joke that is pointing at something that you don't like. Like if you know the references for the joke, that shows your privilege. What does it mean to be somebody who is spiritually inclined, but has never found a church home or always felt like, I don't know, that just felt like a different culture for me. And so I'm really excited to talk with our friend Maria who represents that perspective. And we'll get to hear a little bit uh, from her about that. Uh, I'm very excited. Uh, we're gonna be hearing from our friend Lester Mitchell and talking about the perspective of a black man in America uh, on faith and on, uh, on, on God. We're gonna dig into a little bit of black liberation theology. And I saw in the chat, some people were asking about wanting to learn a little bit more about that. So we're gonna be doing that. And then finally, uh, as, as I mentioned, in, in light of the, the, uh, the rebuke of toxic male behavior that we saw from AOC earlier this week, uh, we're also uh, gonna be having a discussion about feminist theology. And so there's lots to get excited about in uh, this series as we look ahead to the next month. Uh, we hope that you guys are really appreciating this. And again, you can go back and listen to all of the old ones on what will be our YouTube channel. Very excited about that. But also you can always find them on the podcast uh, that we've had. Uh, Kyle, as we let this kind of sink in, uh, uh, would, you, would you pray for us uh, and before mm -hmm. we uh, move to announcements? Yeah. Well, Jesus, we are deeply grateful that you desire life. You desire freedom. You desire liberation. You desire justice. You desire to be uh, close and love us. And we pray that today we would find you showing up with us and inviting us into a deeper experience of life. That you would help kind of pull off the veils, pull off all of the, the lenses, all of the things that uh, disguise us or, dis or disguise you from us. 
the things that when they're presented to us and we're saying, if that's Jesus, if that's God, if that's what following you looks like, then I don't know, something seems off there. And you can pull away all of that and present yourself to us. And that for those of us who are images of you just are profoundly rooted in white men telling us about you. Even the irony of me talking here, that you would be so dynamically alive that you would be inviting us into a relationship with you as you are, not you as filtered and centered on the narratives of white men. And that you would help us all kind of take a breath and see what you have for us. And in the vein of what I've experienced, that we would ask what's next on our journey and you would bring that to us. You would ask us to look at the structures of the world around us and say, Jesus, how do we participate in change? Not just defend whether we ourselves are in the wrong. And we ask, what are the ways that you uniquely speak to me? And what are the things that are just culture so that we can see your love coming to life in our lives? Amen.